Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So start off by telling me, are you really fine? everyone and welcome to today's episode of No Really, I'm Fine. Today I'm in London and I've come to meet a lady who has spent 10 years of her life sectioned under the Mental Health Act. Now the statement sectioned under the Mental Health Act is used frequently in the media and can often carry negative connotations. However, our guest today wants to change that and she speaks to me about what it's really like to be sectioned. She also talks about living with borderline personality disorder and many, many more moments in her life. Our guest has turned her life around and in this episode, we hear how her darkest moments have been put behind her. This is Welsh Star's story. Hello everyone, today I am in London and I am joined by a very special guest who is here to share her personal story. She is a former patient at St Andrew's Care. Now you might remember me talking about St Andrew's Care when we interviewed um, John, who who works there a few episodes back. Um, And and today we're we're joined by um, Welsh Star, who was a former patient there. St Andrew's Care is a mental health facility based in Essex and Northampton, and it supports people with severe mental illnesses. But if you want to have a little refresher, please do check our previous episodes and you can find all about St Andrew's Care and the people who work there in more depth. But like I say, today is all about um, Welsh Star, who's here today with us. Um, she doesn't want to be named and, and that's totally fine. We we fully support her in, in, in that respect and, you know, we're looking forward to, to hearing her, her story and hopefully that can help other people who may be going through similar experiences. So... Welcome Welsh Star. We start off by asking all our guests who are on today um, if they're feeling really fine. So are you feeling really fine today? I'm feeling really fine. And how was your journey? Journey was all right. Yeah, it wasn't bad at all. A couple of hours. So do you want to start off from wherever you're comfortable? Um, Perhaps I know you were a former patient at St Andrew's Care. Do you want to talk us through your time there and and, and why why you were in, in, in the facility? Okay, so I've actually been in services for 11 years. I first came into services in 2009. Um, I've been in hospitals, um, a few hospitals in England. I'm originally from Wales, hence Welsh Star. And um, I moved to St Andrews in 2018. So I was there on a medium secure ward. It was a DBT ward. So DBT is a therapy that we do with dialectal behaviour therapy. And it's specifically for people with um, personality disorder. Um, so borderline personality disorder is a diagnosis of mine alongside depression. So I originally got into services after becoming really poorly a number of year, years ago. Um, and I committed a crime that deemed that I needed help and support rather than punishment through prison, etc. And that's how I came into services. One of my main problems in services has been self-harm. 
been an issue of mine since childhood. However, it's three years ago tomorrow and I've gone three years without, yeah, three years tomorrow I've gone without self-harm. So. Oh, amazing. So Congratulations. It's, it's, well done. It's huge because it used to be a daily thing for me, um, multiple times a day. So to get to this point, you know, just, it makes me feel good, but it also reinforces myself. I think you often, people with personality disorder needs reassurance and they need, you know, they need to be keep reminded that they're doing okay. Um, because sometimes it's easy to just fall back into those traps that you've been in before with feeling quite worthless and hopeless about life. So just having those having those marks and actually, you know, acknowledging, okay, oh, I've gone three years. That means obviously I am doing all right. And yeah, it's something, it's something for me to, you know, keep feeling good about because it is a big achievement for for how I have been in my life definitely and I feel like there there needs to be a lot more awareness about BBD because I feel like some of people may look at at that as um, split personality but Mm -hmm. it's so much more than that isn't it do you want to tell our listeners what exactly it is and how it how it affects you because everyone's different aren't they yeah I think I I agree with you I think so much more needs to be done Um, I think when I've talked about this before, there's two parts to it. There's the part about the name of BPD. Borderline personality disorder, I think, can often be quite misleading. Um, I've had people think um, I'm borderline unwell or, you know, I'm actually, um, I'm not that, you know, I'm just on the cusp, um, you know, I'm not really unwell. I'm not, you know, it's it's not much of a problem. I also think the term having a personality disorder and also, also can be quite negative. The fact that people think that you have got disordered thinking I think leads on to why people think you've got a split personality etc so it's like you're fine one minute and then you've got disordered thinking the next minute and it is so much more than that I think if anything people with borderline personality disorder need more support because a lot of it does come to as I said earlier about reassurance but we we often feel quite quite down on ourselves I said we also find we don't we don't hold ourselves in much high regard. Um, self harm is normally quite common for people with pers- borderline personality disorder. I think we have we have problems with making decisions and impulsiveness, and I think it's quite often that then is linked to violence and stuff in the eyes of other people. And that's not necessarily the case at all. My impulsiveness has always been about harming myself, and you know it's not been about violence to other people in any way. I think just generally living with it, it's how you feel about yourself and the rest of the world. It's just it's just different and just everything feels a lot more of a struggle and that's why actually more empathy and more support needs to be going to people with borderline personality disorder because because life's tough for anybody and you know having this as well rather than being faced with stigma and faced with discrimination about it we need to be people need to be looking at us and saying that you know okay life is tough you know you know where can we help you that that let's reassure you let's support you that's do what we can to make you feel better, make you feel included in your society rather than outcasting you because you must have split personality or violent thinking or distorted personality. What were some of the first symptoms that you recognised and in terms of prior to your diagnosis, when did that sort of start in your life? So self-harm started quite young from like trauma that I'd went through as a child. I think that all links into to people who then have borderline personality disorder it comes from early attachment issues and relationship issues and you know especially trauma that has happened in early childhood I think that I first noticed that I I just didn't like myself very much I didn't understand myself I felt that I was different I felt I didn't fit in and not fitting in has been like something that 
there's even even times now, you know, and I think I've come so far in my recovery that I just I feel like I don't fit in. I am different, and it's about you know sometimes sometimes labeling that just to yourself, but sometimes I need that extra and labeling it to others and just just to, for people to actually help me feel like okay, you you are doing all right, you know. It's you're not you're not so different to other people in a bad way, you know. Obviously, we're all different, but that's okay. It's mm. I think that's something that has taken a long time for me to to realize and actually still still today do need to remind enough from time to time. Can you talk to me about the crime or the situation which led you to go into facilities? Um I don't really want to speak about the details of it. Um but it was a, I tried to harm myself but in a way of harming myself it would have put other people at risk potentially. Fortunately, I was okay and no one else got harmed. Um, but it, it was a dangerous situation that I put myself in and as I said, potentially other people, it was a cry for help in some ways because of the way I was trying to harm myself. Fortunately, I did have a judge who saw that and that's why I ended up going into, going into hospital in the end that alongside my continuing self-harm because during that time in my life, my self-harm was just escalating, um, you know, to the point I was doing life-threatening self-harm on a regular basis. Talk to me about how you felt about going into these facilities because on previous episodes we've talked about sort of the stigma surrounding mental health facilities and you know a lot of people associate them in a negative way. How, how did you feel when you found out you were to go into these places? Um, well it all happened pretty quickly um, and I think that is that's a shame I think because if people had acknowledged my problems beforehand and I was reaching out there was previous episodes of self-harm that needed medical care etc my GP was involved I think if people had picked up on stuff maybe we could have done a planned admission somewhere that would have probably been less scary for me a lot scarier a lot less scary for my family um, rather than just finding yourself somewhere yeah it was difficult it was scary I think I didn't understand my I didn't really understand mental health then you know this I think in the last 10 years we understand a lot more I'm not saying it was, I don't know, in some aspects it's still taboo now, you know, but we're doing a lot more now. 10, 12 years ago, it was it was a little bit more taboo, I suppose. Yeah, I just wasn't in a great place myself. So I didn't go into services, you know, great-minded. I didn't settle in too well. My self-harm continued to escalate. I think being in services, there's a lot to take in. I think you've got your own care and your own treatment pathway and that's hard enough in itself. But then you're on a ward with maybe 12, 15 other people and they've got all their own care and all their own treatment pathway and they're poorly too. It's a really difficult environment to be in. And I've been in situations in different hospitals, you know, um, even up to recently, whereas it can be really stressful and really um, really provoking to to be on a ward or in an environment where where you've got so much going on when actually... You're, you're trying your hardest to focus on yourself, but there's so much of a distraction as well. And you can sometimes forget about how you feel and if there's all this going on around mm-hmm. you, I suppose. What was the turning point for you then when you were in the services? So um, I was in hospital and I'd done some trauma therapy. And I think, um, so I've done, I've done a number of therapies, but I think the two that have been most important to me was DBT, like I mentioned earlier. So DBT focuses on giving you skills to, in order to kind of manage your self-harm there's lots of other parts of dbt too but that was the big point of me being able to get in i couldn't start my trauma therapy until my self-harm was under control 
um, because it would have been too dangerous to have tried to do the two together. Um, so getting to the point where my self-harm was a, a, a point that was manageable was first. Um, when you say trauma therapy, do you mean discussing what happened previously? Yeah, so yeah. Yeah, I then went on to do trauma therapy. So I did a, tra- a therapy called schema-focused therapy. So schema, um, it's a big emphasis is about the relationship between yourself and the therapist, um, which is really tough on me. I have grew up in quite an invalidating environment in to some extent. And actually I found it really difficult to trust in trusting people. Um, I think a lot of people have come into my life have come in and they'd either let me down at some point or they walked out again because, because of my behaviors were just too difficult to manage. So having somebody who was going to stick around was really important, but that took a long time to build. Um, and then the therapy schema therapy focuses on your modes and everyone has different modes and you have kind of in a snapshot adult and child modes you have vulnerable modes and you have angry modes etc um but then you also have like your healthy modes you know you're a healthy adult that you know needs to be present more so it was all about trying to reduce the amount of time I felt in my younger modes you know and feeling more a healthy adult more of the time um and I think some people talk about specific moments that change and there was a moment during that therapy whereas I genuinely felt like a light bulb went off and I connected with my child, my inner child, my younger self and I connected to the point that I no longer, I let go of so much anger and hate and it just allowed me to move forward. I think it was so important in my healing. So by by healing my trauma, I felt less shame about myself I then didn't self-harm as more. Um, I'd built a good relationship with my therapist, so I understood the importance of relationships and how I've had a lot of negative relationships in my life and how they've impacted on me and how it, it was so important to build healthy relationships and what would be my trigger points of falling into unhealthy relationships again. So I think that was a massive ther- massive set of therapy that I'd done over a period of about um, maybe three years. Mm. Um, so a significant period of time and it was after that and then a stable period that allowed me then to move on to St. Andrews where I was there for like 18 months Um, and I continued doing DBT therapy there but the role kind of changed whereas I was also like a champion for DBT and I helped other people and because I was a lot more well myself I was able to access other opportunities I probably hadn't been able to do before because of just feeling so poorly in myself. That must have been rewarding for yourself, though, to then go on to help other people. Yeah, I'm so passionate about it. I just think, I think it's important that I try to give back. Um, but it's also, I think when you live with people, you want to, you, you see them really poorly. And as though sometimes it might be demanding and frustrating, there's also a part to you, there's a pull to you because you think, I've been there, I've been that person. And if you can do anything that can help them out and get them through it a little bit easier, I don't know, I just think this... And then there's just something there that makes you feel connected to them and that you want to help them in some way. So what's it like to be in a mental health facility? I've had good and bad experiences. I've witnessed things that in my earlier times are not necessarily great. And also when you're living, you're living maybe with people who are also self-harming or are violent or doing other behaviours, sometimes witnessing that can be quite traumatic too. But at the same time, it's not how the media portrays, you know, um, when I lived in, say, St. Andrews, for instance, you know, I know a lot of people think of a hospital or your bedroom as like padded cells, um, people walking around like in uniform, swinging keys and 
holes in your doors to talk through and stuff and that's it and you're being locked behind a door it's not like that at all you know I had my own bedroom and and um bathroom you know um we had communal areas we had comfy areas to go and relax we had access to computers but also on the ward but then we had gym facilities occupational facilities um the grounds at St Andrews are really nice you know you could get out you could walk there was lots to do and then there was links to do stuff in the community I was fortunate to get myself into a place where I was, I was, I was actually had a kind of job role at St. Andrews. So, um, working with the patient engagement team. So that was like a great opportunity for me because that's the sort of stuff I want to move on to in the future in my work. So it allowed me to kind of retap into skills that I hadn't used for a number of years and then try them out again to get myself ready for moving on to the next step. And that was, I've moved on to a rehab facility and I'm now no longer under section and I'm waiting to move into some sort of supported accommodation in the community. Can you talk to me about some of the feelings you you go through sort of when you're in a mental health facility? I mean, is there a feeling of, I shouldn't be here, what am I doing here? Do you go through sort of different stages of acceptance, perhaps? Definitely. I think at the beginning, it's, you feel, it's unfair and that actually um, you don't deserve this and you shouldn't be here and you don't fit in and, Although they're like that, I'm not like that because you are quite, I don't know, you don't quite see yourself, I suppose. I think quite often when you have been poorly for so long and living in the community, you don't see yourself how other people see you. So you kind of feel like, yeah, that that is unjust you being there. Um, but I think as time goes by and the more acceptance you get, you actually see that these places are just to help you. You do generally have good team with you you know when you have a team you have a a doctor a psychologist an OT therapist social worker and stuff you have like a good team behind you all of their aim is to get you to the same place you know and that's to get you into the point of moving on I think what is difficult with there is so many parts to moving on Um, I think especially when when you get into medium secure or higher and high secure to try and move then into the community there's so many steps that you have to take so to just get there and that can be really difficult because ideally you would need a service that had all your different levels of security sort of thing in one place because otherwise like for me I moved around different places in the country over the over the last 10 years and transitions are difficult change is difficult for anyone change especially for someone with borderline personality disorder is so difficult and quite often the transitions are then destabilizing um but that is your only option. And you almost find a lot of people I've seen, they've they've got to the place of being well to moving forward. The transition has been so difficult and destabilising, they then got backwards. And that's how then they end up getting caught up in the system. I think there's lots of, there's lots of um, flaws to the system. I think there's, I think they're trying to change it. I know some hospitals in St. Andrews is one, they've now got the blended service and that's like combining medium and low secure together so you've got a less transition you've got a less moving on block so talk to me about the different stages and just some of our listeners might not know what they mean so you'd have high secure services so in this country there's only one high secure service um for women um then you would normally drop down to medium secure which is where i was at at st andrews um and there's other medium secures across the country then you tend to go to a low secure then you would tend to go to a rehab facility then it would be something like support accommodation in the community and then you'd be in the community on your own. So there's, you're looking at there's five 
steps that you need to do just to get out and you can't even if none of them are destabilizing you need to prove yourself for each step you need to manage each step so it's quite a lengthy time and I think that's why a lot of people are in the system they're in there for so long mm. does it go by level of risk to yourself Is uh, that how yourself it's, and yeah. others yes yeah. yes it's your, it's your levels of risk uh yeah people are people are in different areas for different reasons I suppose it's all very individual but it is normally determined by your risk to yourself and others mm. and what sort of stage did you find the hardest or were they all particularly difficult I was in high school and that was really tough especially when I first went there because I felt that it was really unfair that I, why I was there but that's where I'd done the bulk of my therapy and that's where it got myself really well so I'm actually really thankful for that time maybe that wasn't the hardest maybe my time actually in St Andrews was probably the hardest mainly because of how I was myself because I was I was well my whole time at St Andrews, yet I was still there for, I don't know, something like 15 months. So it's a lot, you know, it's, and you've got to prove yourself each time and each time you move. And it's not, you're not just proving yourself to the nurse on duty that day. It's your whole team and then everyone's got their own home team. So because I'm from Wales, it's always put an extra bit of complication in that. So it's satisfying the team at St Andrews, but also my team in Wales. And you find a lot of the time that your, te- your home teams don't actually know you. They're the ones that are obviously your commissioners to pay for you to be in certain places. It's just, it's not straightforward. And I suppose it's, it must be difficult as well if, you, if you're then rejected to move on. Is it sort of like, do you sort of, forgive me, I don't know how these things work, but mm-hmm. do you sort of get approval to move on to the next stage? You so, do, yeah. yeah. So they, they deem that you're ready. Um, you then, your home team needs to find you a placement or a multiple placements who will then come and assess you they've got to accept that you're suitable for their placement. So even though someone says, okay, you're ready to move on, it doesn't mean then you can go next month. It, it can just take a number of months. And I think that's why a lot of people, sometimes they get frustrated by it and then they go backwards themselves as well. There needs to be something about quickening up these processes. Um, I think obviously the blended service is one way of doing that. But I think in the future, you know, the way mental health services looks probably does need to change in order to, you know, for, in some cases people do need to be in services that length of time but I think a lot of people they necessarily don't but it's the system that actually slows them down. And you're in rehab right now? So I'm in rehab right now and since I moved into rehab under a section so under a mental health section that I've been on since going into services 11 years ago but I'm now just an informal patient there, which means, you know, I reside there, but I can come and go as I please. I'm not, I'm not detained under the Mounted Health Act. And I'm now trying to work with my home team to get me accommodation in the community, which is, again, posing difficult just because my home team's in Wales and I want to be in England, etc. And how long has it taught you to get to that stage? So it's been the 11 years. Mm. Did you expect it to be that long? No. I didn't, I never thought going in, I was going to lose a decade in my life. And so much has changed in that decade. It's, it's where well, I was just talking um, on the way up and um, things like I'd never had a smartphone until a few months ago and getting a smartphone and you've have heard about Netflix and then you gain Netflix. Um, it's almost like you open up to a whole new world. And these are the things that people take for granted and they're taken away from you. And it's, Maybe you don't notice as much when 
you've not had it but then when you when you do come out and you see it it's I think to some people it can be quite overwhelming you know because it is so much is stripped away from you because of because of security reasons and access and stuff and what people can access through the internet quite often in hospitals you don't get internet access um, if you do get phones they're normally basic phones rather than ones that can access the internet so they're not smartphones um, it's like a whole new world and has it been overwhelming for yourself I wouldn't say I've been more excited by it than overwhelmed, but some things have been way over my head in setting up and I've had to take advice from, which 10 years ago I was quite tech savvy and would have been able to have managed all that myself. So how quick technology has changed probably did surprise me in a lot of ways. And you do hear about things, but until you actually witness it yourself and it becomes part of your life, you don't really realise what it's all about. So what are some of the things that have changed in your life from 10 years ago to now in terms of, so you got a new smartphone, so smart, Netflix? Yeah, um, just even the way, even the way Google works, you know, so different. You've got like your, your Alexas and stuff. None of that was, you know, I've, you've, I used to hear it. I used to hear staff talking about it and stuff. You see adverts on TV. Yeah, it's quite strange that you can literally ask something to tell you something and it does it. You know, I've never, never had that before. <laughs> You know, I've just never, and it probably sounds really basic to you guys, no, but no. it's just that if you haven't had that before, it's quite, yeah, it's quite surreal that that can happen. I also think how places changed. So I went home last weekend, back to Wales for a weekend. Although I'd spent odd days there, that was more seeing family because I went for a few days, I got to see some of the areas. And if you'd blindfolded me and put me some of the areas, and this is like my hometown where I grew up, it's completely different to 10 years ago. I wouldn't have even recognised it. I wouldn't have known I was in the same place. So that's changed so much as well. Contactless. I was just going to say that. Yeah, yeah, huge. You know, like, obviously... can be dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I've got contactless on my phone now. My mum's like, don't do it. And I'm just... Yeah, but, um, you know, that is just how easy it is to pay for things. Um, and now, I know not quite 10 years ago, but it's like nobody uses checks anymore. Yeah, checks used to be something that, you know, when I was out sorting out my finances and stuff used to be used quite a lot. Yeah, the way you can just transfer money through through a phone app is just, obviously it's, it makes life a lot easier and that's probably why those things are in place. But at the same time, when you haven't had it for so long, it's, um, yeah, it's, it opens your eyes a bit. And if, have you had that support personally and, you know, getting ready to go back into the community have you had that support is that something that you have to go through in terms um, of you know this is this is how you pay bills now or you know things like that I haven't um I think if I wanted it I could ask for it and I would get it um and I think for a lot of people they do need that I think because before going into services I did live on my own and stuff and I managed myself pretty well I don't need so much as help in those areas and I've got a good family and friends network, so there's always people I can ask out. But I can imagine there are people who don't have family and friends and haven't had those experiences. And going into the back into the real world is going to be very, very scary. And we need to, as as mental health services, be supporting those going in because if you're going to send them back into the community not equipped, then no wonder they're likely to deteriorate again and may come back into services. And surely that's the goal we all need to be working towards is we get people well, we get them into the community so they can actually have a life and not be coming back in because of actually where we haven't supported them in some way. And and what are your thoughts on social media? Because I know it exists, it probably did exist 10 years ago, but it's not as, it's not as, it wasn't as big as it is now. And 
you're on Twitter, I'm on Twitter, and, and you know, people use Twitter for either positive or negative, have mm-hmm. negative experiences. What are your thoughts on it? And, and is it something that can, could help people coming out of um, services or do you reckon it may sort of trigger some people? How, how do you feel I think depending on how you use it, I used to be on Facebook years ago before going into services. That's not something I've chose to go back into. And I am on Twitter under Welsh Star and I use it mainly to to talk about mental health and the positives I'm doing um, with my blog, etc. Um, I think it's how you want to use it. It can be a good support and the sort of stuff I've seen coming through, but I also think it can be difficult too. I think especially for people who haven't got mental health problems, if someone says something, if if you're a little bit more sensitive that day, you might take it to heart. But you imagine somebody with borderline personality disorder and reading a negative comment could actually maybe trigger them to having a meltdown and try and, you know, to actually make them feel really rubbish about themselves again. So I think it depends on maybe how resilient you are. If you're doing it because you want to have support and try and promote change and talk about positives, then it's a great platform. You know, it's an amazing platform. But I think, yeah, I think if you are fragile, uh, maybe it's not the best of ideas because sometimes it can be cruel, you know. And I've seen, you know, not necessarily trolls, but some people who have have said stuff that's negative and it's it doesn't need to be said and actually it can it can be quite quite mean on people do you think there's the same level of support in a facility than there is outside or do you do you feel like sometimes it takes to the point where you sort of have to harm or threaten yourself to get Get better support definitely Mm. there was nothing available for me in the community nothing that was helpful in any way anyway and yeah, it took for me to do something. And I don't even think when they've looked back at my crime and we've done work on it, it, it still hasn't been, even though the the aim of that was to harm myself, it's still not been looked at in the way of harm myself. It was the potential harm to others, which is bizarre in a way. Mm. You know, I'm not saying that that's not important at all, but if you're going to look at the root of it and look at why this person is going to harm themselves, because if we can sort that out, then they're never going to they're never going to put other people at risk again because they're not going to harm themselves. It just actually made me feel worse about myself. You know, I didn't I didn't do it because I thought, oh, this could potentially harm somebody. Um, I didn't even see see outside the box in that sense. And I don't know. It made me feel yeah. It did make me feel really rubbish for myself. And I, you know, I went through a number of years of feeling feeling massively guilty. You know. Um, rather than maybe sh- people should have looked at actually what I was doing to myself. And I think I think I know, you know, if you self-harm nowadays and you end up in A&E, you get to be seen by a crisis team, et cetera. But so much more needs to be done there because I've, I've seen these crisis teams, um, granted, over 10 years ago, so possibly they've changed, but I don't think they have massively through people I've talked to. They're quite easy to fob off in one sense. You can just say, oh, I'm fine now, and then off you go. But also the support they do offer you, it's almost like they'll only offer you again if you're in crisis. Mm. And surely the point is that rather than just manage the problem when we get there, let's try and prevent the problem and work with people in the first place. It's just, it just shouldn't be like that. And do you think that attitude is still still exists today? Do you think that still yeah, continues? I think yeah, I think it does. Talk to me about um, friendships then in, mm-hmm. in services. Is is it hard to make friends? Um, what What's sort of that side of things like? Um, 
you know, perhaps with the staff or, and with with other patients as well. Do you, do you have friends who you still talk to there? Yeah, or? I think I think relationships are a bit of a minefield anyway for anyone. I think people build on personality disorder massively, and then you're on maybe a ward with twelve other patients, eight staff. There's twenty of you living there that day. It can be it can be really tough. I think to some extent to make true friendship. I think you often find that. People have lots of friends straight away and they get on with everyone and it's like, oh, she's my friend and she's my friend. And you kind of need to realise that you need to be going at this. It's for you. I'm not saying that you should isolate yourself from other people, but I think everyone's goal should be focusing on themselves. I think it's great receiving the support and giving support. But quite often people get caught up in other people's problems because it's like, oh, well, she's my friend. And it's like, actually, you might have only known each other a couple of months, but because you are living together every day, it's quite intense straight away and no one actually no one kind of gives you the heads up on that you know no one prepares you for how it's going to be like um I've got some friends that um so that have moved on themselves or in different places so I've got like two friends through so in my whole 10 years so my whole 10 years there's three people I keep in touch with probably that's not a lot it's probably hard to form real friendships in those sort of places because a lot of people are not not so great themselves. Mm. Um, and I think motives and stuff behind friendships are probably a lot different in services than what they are in the real world. And then obviously staff relationships, and, and that's hard as well, is getting that balance, you know. And I've met staff who have been so closed off that they won't even tell you their favourite colour. And you're just like, oh, come on. Like, you know, I, all I want is try and try and find something we've got in common so we can have a conversation. And I've done a lot of education like that in St. Andrews and the inductions of the new starters coming in of like, it's okay to share these things about you. It's okay to have common interests. What's not okay is to say, I live at 34 so-and-so street, you know, and it's getting that balance right. But I think actually you'll find that I have had a difficulty with staff in the sense of you, you may find you get on more with staff than you do with the patients mainly because they are well um, and also their whole focus is on you. Do you know what I mean? It's not about their stuff. So it's quite a relationship that's quite dedicated to you. You've got to always remind yourself that, yeah, this is friendly and it's okay to be friendly, but it's not a friendship as well. Um, so I think I think that's difficult on both sides. I think that's difficult for staff and patients, but it can be tough. I, I found it tough over the years, you know, um, somebody who finds it difficult relationships anyway. And especially the sort of relationships I talked to you about, it's like therapy relationships, endonose relationships was, it was like a loss. You know, it felt like, it felt like someone significant in my life who completely understand me, completely believed in me was now no longer going to be in my life. It was like, how do I cope with this? Um, That's interesting because you often don't hear that side of things. Normally it's like, everyone always knows that you have a close relationship with the therapist, but no one really often talks about what happens next, do mm -hmm. they? Um, so I can imagine that can be quite difficult, especially when you're sharing, you know, your deepest thoughts with that person. Yeah, they, this person knows you, everything about you. They know all the dark side. Everyone's got skeletons. This person knows all your skeletons and accepts you anyway. And there's a flip side to that. Sometimes I thought well, she only accepts me because it's her job, you know, because she's got to. And I don't know, you, you kind of got to get past that. You know, I think I think I have had good relationships with my therapist, but... You know, there's there's been two throughout my time that have been really difficult in ending um, and are actually still very much a part of my life now in how I live my life and how I think and 
how sometimes when I'm finding things stuff who whose words I go to to actually think okay you know you can do this or get this back on track mm. and do you still maintain friendships um outside so did you still maintain you know connections with family and friends when you were going through yeah. services as well and, and what what was that like so I've been really fortunate with my family I've got a good family network um and my family um have followed me around the country everywhere I've gone I've been really really lucky because I've been living with people who have got no family and friends whatsoever and it's it's sad you know because I do wonder what it would be like to not be able to just pick up a phone when I want to pick up a phone or you know to have them come and see me even if it's not even if it's only every few months so I do find myself quite lucky um friendships I've got a couple of friendships from childhood that I'm still in friends with now and I met up with them when I've go, gone home. But nothing's changed in that sense. I don't know, something like we've gone through long periods of time of not chatting, but I don't know, I think that's probably what a true friendship is, the fact that you can just pick back up and they've been they've been there for me if I've needed them. And um, yeah, it's good that I've still got that. Because I remember when, when we spoke to John, he was saying, you know, some some patients um some of their families don't want to come and come and see them so I, I imagine that that must be quite hard for others as well I did have that um so um my brother although he came to see me very early on the last num I can't remember how many years but a good maybe five years didn't come to see me um partly because he had anxiety problems himself but mainly because it he found it really hard he found it difficult to see to see me. Although it, what you know, you're only sitting in a room maybe like this together. But the fact that um, you know they had to go at the end of it, and I couldn't go with them. I think he found it really difficult and found it tough. He took it. He's taking it. He took it quite hard. Me being away from the family for so long. My mum, for instance, is just like, well, this is a situation. I'll just get on with it because that's the sort of person she is. But I do think I think some. I think some family and friends are put off because it's a hospital um, and because of how it's portrayed, they think, you know, well, what's it going to be like? And they don't want, or they may not want to see their loved one in that sort of situation. And then you may have other family members who don't appreciate maybe how important it is for us to maintain family and friends contact. Um, Cause it's kind of been a lifeline for me to make, to always had that. And I think if you've got your family and friends who don't realize how important it is and they don't come, you know, that's a shame as well. What's one of the things that you're most proud of? Sorry, that's a very tough question. I think, I yeah, there's a few things. So <laughs> yeah, so I do a blog. So um, I do blog whilst I started it at St. Andrews. It's been going nearly a year. Um, so I am proud about that. I think it's more though, just how I've got to know myself and the insight I've got into myself because I think you can get better. I think you can manage self-harm and intrusive thinking. But I think it takes a lot to actually look at yourself, see yourself in the dark ways and the dark times and still actually have compassion for you and say that actually it's okay and you can be different and all of that past doesn't need to define you. I don't want to hide from my past anymore. And I think I used to, it, it used to be such a, such a subject that I just wanted to hide. I don't anymore because it's like actually made me who I am. And I've had like such a great opportunity to, to actually learn and learn who I am. And I probably know myself better than the average person. And I feel quite revived, I suppose, in some sense, you know, I feel good about myself. 
it's taken a long time to get to that and I feel I yeah I do feel quite proud of how how I relate to me now and what's life like for you now life's good for me now I'm excited about the next step obviously moving into the community and stuff I just wanted it back so much uh, and it really I'm really excited about it um but the fact that when you've got your freedom you take it for granted when it's taken away maybe when you're poorly you don't even really understand it you just go with emotions and then as you get well it's a massive thing that you haven't got your freedom it's huge it's the one thing that I've talked about continuously from my blog and to family and friends it's like I need it back I need my freedom back it's just the the fact of being able to have choices has been so important and literally getting that back only a month ago I'd finally feel that I'm actually breathing again and nothing's really changed since I've got my come off my section like where I'm living or what I'm doing etc but just the fact that I am choosing to make good decisions about myself rather than they're making me make good decisions about myself just feels it feels so liberating you know it's just so important can it be a scary thing though as well that having that much freedom especially when you've been going through services for 10 years is it yeah I think so I think um I think there's sometimes when I'm just like you know I really I don't want to mess up I don't want to go back the thought of the thought of losing my freedom again now considering 10 years ago it didn't even dawn on me what that was the thought of it now scares me more than anything um so that's enough to keep you on on a good path yeah and I just I think because I want it so much and because actually I've learned how good transparency has been a massive thing throughout for me and I think if I continue being transparent so I'm not expecting to never have self-harm urges again I'm not expected to not feel low feel rubbish about myself I'm not expecting to actually have some sort of thinking that you know might be troublesome in some way or struggling in some way but I think it's about being honest about that and being open about it with yourself and with your support network whoever they are and you have things in place to manage that now whereas perhaps before you never I didn't have that yeah no I didn't even understand it I didn't I didn't know I didn't know myself and I didn't know what was going on for me it was just I was just really confused and a right mess when you talk about freedom what what were some of those choices or decisions that you missed that you couldn't do that you can perhaps do now walk down the beach Mm. just basic things like that just going out for a walk when you want going for a drive you know I, I've not driven myself yet I used to you used to drive and I'm not driven myself yet but just being out in a car I went through I went through a number of years whereas like you didn't go out in the community at all doing anything so just going for going for a drive in the car and you're just like it just feels so invigorating getting lost for fun <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah kind of walking in the rain and stuff obviously I've been in services whereas if it's too snowy or it's too wet, you can't go out because of health and safety is dangerous. And it's just like, I just want to go and run in the rain. Um, Don't mind if I get a cold. <laughs> no, why not, isn't it? You know, and it's just like, it's just, it's very basic choices. Choosing what I want to eat. So often in services, those sort of things are made on made on you. Medication, obviously we haven't talked about medication, but you know, all these years you're prescribed medication, you're taking medication. Now I'm I'm choosing to take my medication. I get up in the morning, I take my medication because I want to take my medication, not because there's some sort of document saying that I have to take this medication. In terms of medication, is is that something that you found yourself on as you went through services? Were you on any before? I've taken antidepressants earlier on, like throughout my early adult life, on and off to no real effect. And the only medication I am on now is like an antidepressant. 
but I have been on lots of others. I think when you come first come into services, um, I think if you're self-harming a lot and you're difficult to manage, quite often they put you on lots of medication just to try and sedate you and to 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 control the situation, which is sad, really. But I suppose if it's the best thing for you at the time mm-hmm. to make you not hurt yourself, then yeah. That's what they have to do. I don't know. But, I yeah. think, yeah, I think it's a fine balance. I think, yeah. I think I've had it for those reasons. I think I've also had it though because it's like if we just ply her with lots of medication, then she's she's not gonna she's not gonna do anything. And I don't necessarily think that's a good way. Mm-hmm. Medication isn't the answer. I think medication helps. You know, medication is there's just an all round package. And for me, it's been medication. It's been the therapy. And it's also been the relationships that I've built along the way and understanding myself. And when you do go back into the community, do you think you'll still stay on your medication? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I'm choosing to be on medication. And so that's something that I know is important for me. And how long will the process take for you to go back into the community? Is there an idea you have? or have they decided? Hopefully within the next few months. Right. Yeah. So yeah. that's soon then, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Compared to how long I've been in services, it's really soon. Yeah. What's um, one of the first things that you'll do? I only had my first night away from services in 11 years last week. It was my first overnight. Really? And I'm having a few, that was with family, and I'm having a few nights away this week staying in a hotel. So that's going to be on my own. I don't know. I think I, I really want to go for a drive. I really want to just get in a car and go for a drive. That's excited. I'm yeah. really excited for you. Yeah. Um, just one last thing then. What advice would you give to someone who's listening now who's perhaps really struggling? They've perhaps been in a similar situation to yourself. What, what would you say to them? Don't suffer alone. Um, you may not have family and friends who you can talk to, but there is there is places out there. And I think I used to fear a lot of my things got out of hand because I was scared of being judged. And I think if you go to the right places and you speak to, you know, there's, there's communities out there that will listen and will not judge you. And I think if you go, you know, go like that, don't, don't fear you're going to be judged and just be open as you can. And I think the other important thing avoidance I think happens a lot especially with people borderline personality disorder and I think although although having I say this all the time having your odd duvet day is great but I think if you're starting to avoid for a few days it's time to get help it's time to talk it's, or it's time to give yourself a kick at the backside to actually go and do something because it's just not healthy it's not helpful for you and it'll just it'll just make you deteriorate in the long run if people want to find out more about you, Welsh Star, where can they where can they go if they want to read your blog as well? So the Welsh Star blog is on the uh, St Andrew's website. Um, so just go on the website and have a look under blogs, news and blogs. 